Well, it is so wonderful to begin our year by worshiping together this morning and studying God's Word together. What a great way to begin a new calendar year. And the passage that will help us begin this begin a profitable start, make a profitable start to the new year this morning is Psalm 56, Psalm 56. So I invite you to join me there this morning, the 56th Psalm. And like I say sometimes, if you're having trouble finding it, it's right after Psalm 55. We will see that in this psalm, the author, David, poses a very uh, thought-provoking question. The question is this, and we find it in the psalm, what can man do to me? Well, if you glance over some of the current news headlines, you can easily find in the news plenty of evidence that man can do a lot of things to us. Man can oppress, people can attack, slander, hate, kidnap, rob, murder us. Again, just based on the news, it seems that man can do a lot, and yet, That is not the answer that we find in Psalm 56. David asked the question, what can man do to me? But he answers it this way, nothing, not if God is for me and not if I truly trust in him. That is the theme of Psalm 56. It is trust in God even in the midst of difficult circumstances, trusting in God regardless of the circumstances. Now, let's delve into this encouraging and popular psalm. And by popular, I mean that it's quoted several times in the Old Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament as well. The superscription, we call it, at the heading of the psalm, gives us the setting of what David writes here and even tells us a little bit how the nation of Israel utilized this psalm. The superscription says, for the choir director, they use this in their worship, you see, they would sing it, for the choir director, according to Jonath, Elam, Rohikim, a mictum of David. Now, start with that last term, mictum. No one is precisely sure what a mictum was. We find several of the psalms called a mictum, it seems to either be a way to just designate or mark a psalm as being uh, unique or uh, having some special value, or it was simply a technical term to guide the singer. But even more interesting is the phrase that most translations simply leave in the Hebrew. I read it for you, the Hebrew. Some translations do put a translation there, and the translation of it is something like this, a dove on distant oaks. It could be translated, the silent dove of distant lands. What in the world is that? Well, evidently, it was the name of the melody that was used for singing of this song. You know, when you sing this one, you know, use that song, the melody. Now, we don't know what that melody was. So if you want to sing it, just make up your own, sing it any way you want. But back to David's question, what can man do to me? He meant this as a rhetorical question that implies a very definite answer, only one answer, nothing. 
David really believed that to be true. And someone might hear that and say, well, yeah, David, it's easy for him to say, he's a king, he's got lots of money, he commands an army, he lives in a palace in a fortified, protected city. However, that was not the situation David was in when he wrote this psalm. And we know that from the rest of the superscription. It says that he wrote this when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, that situation is found in 1 Samuel. I just want to summarize it for you. It's a fascinating story. Here's the summary. It starts with the fact that early in David's life, King Saul turned against David, as we know, and sought to kill David. So David had been forced to escape, and he first went to a town called Nob, N-O-B. Sounds like a name of a town in North Carolina somewhere, but Nob. It's a town of priests. And there in Nob, the head priest, a man named Ahimelech, assisted David by giving him some food. Ahimelech also gave David a weapon so he could protect himself. Unfortunately for David, there was another man in the town named Doeg. And Doeg eventually took a little bit of a while, there was a little bit of a lapse, but eventually reported to Saul, King Saul, that David had made this visit to Nob and even told King Saul that Himelech, the priest, the head priest, had helped David. Saul got angry over that and he commanded that Ahimelech be killed. And so Doeg carried out that decree. In fact, Doeg killed not only Ahimelech, but he killed all the priests of Nob, about 85 altogether, and slaughtered all their families as well. Well, between the time of David's visit to Nob and the time when Doeg made that report to Saul, in between those two times, two incidents happened, which you find in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. First, David fled Nob, and he went to the fortified city of Gath, a Philistine city. That means that David actually chose to take refuge among his enemies, the Philistines, somehow hoping that maybe it was so bizarre, maybe they wouldn't recognize him and he'd be safe. However, they did recognize him, and if you read the account of that, it's really interesting. He decided on the spur of the moment, to fake madness. He acted like he was crazy so that they would decide not to kill him. It worked temporarily. He was still in the city of his enemies and was not safe. And so when he realized he was still not safe in Gath, that second city, he then escaped to a cave in the wilderness While he was in that cave for a while, his brothers joined him there. A bunch of other people who were discontented joined him there. He accumulated or collected about 400 valiant men who did become the core of his army. Our psalm was written, Psalm 56, was written about David's time in Gath, in that Philistine city. So between the time at Nob and before he arrived at the cave and and was able to gather a following. While in Gath, David had good reason to be fearful. In fact, we can really conclude that he had to have been 
in a state of desperation to even make that choice to hide out in Gath. Again, those were the Philistines, his enemies. But also because of something particular that town was known for. There were other Philistine cities, would have been safe there either, but this one doubly not safe. Why? Gath had been the home of someone famous. Their great military hero, hero, whom they took confidence in, Goliath, the very one David had killed just a few years before this. So obviously, David would not have chosen to hide out there unless he really had been desperate, so he was. One more thing, remember what I said about Nob and the high priest Ahimelech and the help that Ahimelech gave David when he was in Nob? I said that Ahimelech had given David some food. Ahimelech had also given David a weapon. Guess what weapon? He gave David the sword of Goliath. Now think about that. We don't find a description of the sword in Scripture. We do know from 1 Samuel, though, that Goliath was over nine feet tall. His armor was appropriate to the size of the man, so therefore his sword must have been large as well. It certainly would have been easily recognized by the people of Gath, their hero's sword. Again, David must have been desperate to walk into Gath carrying that sword. So there he was, desperate, alone. It's easy to understand then that fear would naturally be his first reaction. That's why David resorted to temporarily pretending to be out of his mind so that they would not kill him. But David knew that was only a temporary fix. What did he do ultimately that was, enabled him to write things like I said earlier about his trust in God? David prayed. And he articulated once again his confidence in the Lord. He articulated in prayer his confidence in the Lord. And that is what truly helped calm his heart and overcome the fear. Now we find that expressed in what are the central verses of the psalm. Jump down to verses 3 and 4. And you really find the summary of it there. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Let's personalize this this morning. Do you ever feel afraid? Have you ever felt desperate in some situation? Have you ever felt alone? If so, I believe you will find this psalm to be encouraging because it is about the kind of faith that gives victory over those very real situations, those very real emotions. Now, there's more than one way to break down this psalm. One way is to divide it into two parts, and that's the simplest way. We'll do that, and the key refrain that I read to you is found in each one of the parts. Here's part number one, the urgency of the crisis, the urgency of the crisis. The urgency is reflected in his initial request that we'll look at, and as well, you find the urgency reflected in the very descriptions of the crisis that he gives us. 
Here's the initial appeal, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. That term gracious is a word that includes the idea of condescension. In other words, it's favor that God bestows, but it's the favor of God bestowed on someone who does not deserve it. David knew that about himself. He knew he was undeserving, but he also knew the kind of God that God is. It is God's nature to bestow grace. So David was confident he could make this urgent appeal to God for help, for grace, and he needed this gracious help because he was being relentlessly pursued by his enemies, not just Philistines, but Saul and his followers, enemies after him. It was a severe situation. And we're going to see the severity expressed in some of the terms he chose to use, terms like being trampled and oppressed and how it would go on all day long. You add all those terms together and it's a very clear and striking way of David saying this, I am in a situation where I am overwhelmed because no matter what direction I turn, this problem does not go away. They are always after me, always pursuing me. The troubles that I am are relentless. Let's examine how he describes these terrible circumstances. He says, first of all, for man has trampled upon me. Now, he mentions these enemies more than once in the psalm, and he uses the term man more than once, or at least what's translated many times as man, but he doesn't always use the same Hebrew word. That doesn't always come out in our English translations. Sometimes it does. This one is the Hebrew term enosh. You don't have to remember that. Do remember this. It means mortal man. Mortal man. It's a simple way. A simple way of pointing out man's insignificance as compared to God, contrasted with God. But regardless of their ultimate insignificance, they still were fierce in what they were seeking to do. That verb trampled means to crush, but to angrily crush. And so here it's figurative of the enemy's desire to crush David into submission as they raged against him in anger over and over again. Verse 1 continues, fighting all day long, he oppresses me. And that verb oppresses carries this idea of squeezing something, maybe even pressing someone in a certain way to go a certain direction or squeezing and pressing an object. So it expresses the application of great force. That's what it felt like to David. And it seemed that they would never give up. He says, all day long, this is what I deal with. Verse 2, my foes have trampled upon me all day long. So he repeats that verb trampled. But now he uses a different subject for the verb. It's not just simply man. Here he calls them my foes or my adversaries. They may have been just enosh, mortals, but to him they were powerful adversaries. And again, these enemies were after him all the time, all day long, but David rightly discerned what motivated them. Verse 2, for they are many who fight proudly against me. Those enemies were driven by their own pride. In their arrogance, 
they were attacking the psalmist, seeking to pressure him into submission, subjection. So how did the psalmist handle these desperate circumstances in the midst of this urgent crisis? Verse 3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Do you see what he's doing there? On one hand, he's acknowledging fear. In other words, he's acknowledging his own human frailty. He did indeed taste fear. He knows what that is. But when I am afraid, he says, he rises above it. When I'm in a frightening time, here's what I do. I trust in God. And that is what ultimately overcame his fear. Nowhere in here do we find that the crisis itself was quickly diminished in some way. That's the way it is in our lives. We can be in troubling circumstances, a time of crisis. We can feel desperate and alone. And the circumstances don't necessarily change. We certainly should never promise somebody, oh, it'll get better. It doesn't always get better. Sometimes it gets worse. So the crisis itself was not necessarily diminished. And David was not making an idol of that here. He's not demanding that they, it has to change. He's not making an idol out of comfort, not making an idol out of no trials, no troubles. No, but his confidence in the one who could bring it to an end, his confidence in the one who could bring encouragement to his own soul, that is what ultimately helped him rise above the fear in victory over it, even in the midst of the crisis. Now, specifically, here is what prompted David to trust God. Verse 4, in God, whose word I praise. Now, the verb praise here means to boast in something, but to understand the biblical sense of it, we have to get rid of of what we normally think about boasting, arrogant boasting, boasting in one's own person or boasting in your own skill, your own accomplishments. It's not that. In the biblical sense, boasting is the same thing as being confident. And what David took confidence in, what he boasted in, he says, was God's word. And the term word here can refer to any kind of, any form of divine revelation. And certainly in the time in which David lived, there were divine individual revelations and visions from God. God's word revealed that way. There was the written text of Scripture, those visions And words from God would be included many times in the written text. David had some written text as well, the law of Moses. You can refer to any of that. And David knew both sides of it. David loved the word, the written word, the broadest understanding of the word. Listen to what he tells the the people in 1 Kings 2, verse 3. Here's his admiration and respect for the word of God, the written word. 1 Kings 2, 3, he told the people, keep charge of the Lord your, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. David loved the word of God. He respected the word of God. He sought to obey the word of God, failing at times, of course. But David also understood specific prophecy from the Lord. I mean, David's the one who received the Davidic covenant, the promise from God that his reign would be eternal in some sense, his immediate descendant, but also the Messiah who would come, a descendant of David. He understood 
specific prophecy. So David was aware of all that God says, whether something to him personally or what had been recorded in Scripture. His point here is he had confidence in what God said. It was truth. And then the second half of the verse provides the logical conclusion of that confidence. Verse 4, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. It was because he trusted in God. It was because he boasted in the word of God and had confidence in it that he was not afraid. Again, we've already seen it doesn't mean that he never sensed fear at all. He tasted it. But he's saying he did not yield to it. He was able to live above it. And his confidence in the Lord is then expressed in that rhetorical question that's so central to the psalm. Verse 4, what can mere man do to me? What's interesting is the word changes. It's not enosh now. It's a different one in Hebrew. It's the term basar. It's the term for flesh. Some translations go ahead and put it that way, flesh. What can mere flesh do to me? The NASB, the translation I'm preaching from, says mere man. That's a way to, 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 to put it in terms where you get the meaning of what flesh means here. It's the term that depicts man as being frail. It's man in his weakness. Flesh could do nothing to David, at least nothing, except what God in his sovereignty permitted man to do. So David reasoned that mere man, flesh, was powerless to thwart God's eternal purposes in his life. And that's why David was confident. Confident because who God is and what God had said. Therefore, since he was so confident, he has no hesitation continuing to discuss the nature of the crisis and the enemy's attacks. Verse 5, all day long they distort my words. And that word means to shape something, to bend it. We, We say things like this, he twisted my words. That's what his enemies were doing, constantly twisting David's words. I mean, on one hand, they, they did want to kill him, and David was aware of that. But the way David words this phrase, it implies that this is what bothered him the most. It was the slander. It hurt David even more than the physical danger. Verse 5 says, all their thoughts are against me for evil. Every plan they made was to hurt David. Everything they came up with was for the purpose to bring David down to ruin David. In verse 6, he keeps describing this crisis and their relentless intent. They attack. It means they gather together and do it. They discuss it together in in anger toward him. And they even stir up strife. They, They get together in their hostility to stir up strife amongst the people against David. He says they also lurk. And that means to hide, but in a in a negative way. They 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 lie like in the dark, like they're setting an ambush for David. He says, they watch my steps while they lie in wait. They they observe, they plan. Literally, he says, they watch, they observe my heels. That's the literal translation of it. And the point is that they were watching his every movement. Why? Why were they observing, keeping track of every step he took? Because they were always looking for ways to harm him when they had the chance. 
That's what David was living with. It was nothing new. He says, as they have waited to take my life, that little word as indicates this had been their habit now for a while. So in summary, here you have his enemies constantly plotting plotting to harm him. They're misrepresenting his words as part of this slanderous smear campaign. We know from Scripture they even tried to slander him in the eyes of Saul, twisting his words about things he'd said about Saul. They lurked in the shadows, always watching, always tracking him, ready to strike at a moment's notice, eager to pounce, take his life even. What a crisis. No doubt, terrible circumstances that David was in, and they just the circumstances just did not seem to let up. So he prayed. He even prayed that God would judge these enemies, verse 7. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. The Hebrew here also makes good sense as a question. You could translate it as a question. Because of their wickedness, are they going to continue to go forth? The answer is no. There's no escape, not ultimately. Because of all their wickedness, because of all their sins against David, because of the trouble they were causing, for all this, they would not escape eventually, but they would be judged by God. So he prays for that. Verse 7, in anger, put down these people, O God. Put down the peoples, the nations. Another way to describe the enemies. Put them down. Bring them down. It's, it's out of arrogance that they're acting. So bring them down. And it just means to judge them. Judge these wicked enemies so that they never again would bring harm and destruction to him or others. Now you read that and go, whoa, that kind of prayer makes me comfortable. So it's okay. I mean, I got this neighbor next door that's really causing me a lot of trouble. Can I write this out and put it on his door maybe? Well, in essence, here's what the prayer is. It's a prayer for God to express who he is in his righteous anger. God is that. It's a prayer for God to honor his word, to be just. It's a prayer for God in his justice to defend God's own purposes and cause from those who were continually trying to destroy it. It is right for God to do that. It is right for a just God to deal with enemies of the truth according to their iniquity, according to their wickedness. Well, there's the urgency of the crisis, and all that trouble was real for David. It's not made up. It's not hyperbole. A lot of symbolism to try to capture it, but truly, these were urgent times for him, times that were painful, potentially devastating, if it had not been for his trust in the Lord. And that brings us to the second part. We've seen the urgency of the crisis. Number two, the fullness of the comfort. The fullness of the comfort. This final part has some beautiful and comforting imagery for us. Verse 8, you, he's talking to God, you have taken account of my wanderings. In other words, he's saying God knows what happens in the lives of his people. And he genuinely cares, not just for them in a general way, but he cares for every detail of their experiences on earth. He takes account, as it were. 
in the sense that, that of God observing and, and taking account and considering it and counting all the details. Now, obviously, that is a figurative statement because God is omniscient. He doesn't literally have to count things. He knows all things. He knows all things at every moment. So he does not actually have to take count like this. But David wanted to put it this way. He wanted to say it in a way that it, it, it's obvious that God is intimately aware of and intimately involved in the affairs of life. It's as if the Lord had carefully observed and meticulously made some entry all the details of David's experiences. And he calls his experience here, Experiences here his wanderings. And that's because he was away from home. He's on the run during this time of trouble. But it didn't matter where he was. David didn't say, as long as I'm safe in, in, in Jerusalem, you know, in the palace, then I know God cares about me. No, God still knew all the details of his situation. God even knew the reason behind it. God knew all the suffering that David was going through. God knew the temptation it was for David to feel hopeless at times. Therefore, God, David prayed that God would not only take count of it, but this is so beautiful here. He, he prays that God would even not forget it. I know you've taken count of it. It's all entered, but don't forget it. Keep it as a memory. Look how he says it. Put my tears in your bottle. And the word tears here is just used to represent all that he was going through, all the suffering, all the sorrow it caused. And the bottle is figurative. Obviously, God doesn't have a literal tear bottle, one for each of us, you know, up there with a label on it, you know, it's stuck on there. Somehow he's retaining the physical evidence of our suffering, you know, all the tears, he puts them in that bottle. But we get the idea. It's the idea of God preserving the memory of his people's pain. God knows every aspect of the suffering and he never forgets it. And then the next rhetorical question expresses another figurative comparison. On one hand, it's like, I want you to remember it this way. Put, put my tears in your bottle. On the other hand, it's a rhetorical question. Are they not in your book? That's another symbolic way to represent God's knowledge. Of course, God's knowledge doesn't need to be based on a written record. He doesn't have to have a book. He's omniscient. But again, the ultimate point of all this symbolism is that the psalmist's pain and anguish were fully known to God in every way. And since God had perfect knowledge of what, God, of what David was going through, and since God would always do what was right for his own glory and what was right on David's behalf, David was confident of what the end result would be. Verse 9, my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. In other words, they're going to be repulsed at some point. They're going to be defeated by some point by God. And there's a reason why he could say this would be true. Verse 9, here it is. This is so beautiful, so comforting. This I know. I don't know the details of the timing and the when and the how, but this I know, and it's enough, that God is for me. And when he says no here, it's a verb that, that means the kind of knowledge that comes not from a classroom, not from just reading it in the theology textbook. It's the knowledge that comes from experience. 
in his life, he had gained this knowledge. He knew by experience that God was on his side. And because of that, he was compelled to do what he should do. He was compelled to give the Lord the worship that the Lord deserves. Verse 10, in God whose word I praise. God here is the name Elohim. And he uses that name for God, I think it's about four times in this psalm. Elohim. It's a common name for God in the Old Testament. You can go all the way back to Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So it's that name that captures the power of God and the strength of God. He's Elohim. So this Elohim, the infinite, all-powerful God who proves his power as the creator and sustainer of all things, he has the power to be the supreme judge of the world. David took comfort from knowing that this is who God is and that nothing can thwart God's purposes and that God is able to accomplish all things that he purposes to do. But he also used another name for God, verse 10. In the Lord whose word I praise. And there it's the name Yahweh. Sometimes we say Jehovah. Yahweh. It's that name that captures God's covenant relationship with his people. He's a God of loving kindness toward his people, and he never fails them. It's the name that points to his timeless self-sufficiency as the great I Am. So whether he refers to God as Elohim or Yahweh, didn't matter. The psalmist was affirming what he knew about the Lord. And he had learned God's identity in his word. So again, he says, this is what he boasted in. He took comfort in that word. The very word that assured him that God cared for him. The very word that assured him that God is a trustworthy God. It's the word that that taught him that that all flesh and blood can ultimately do is nothing. God's word is true. And that's still true for us today. It's what makes his word one of the greatest gifts he's ever given us. And because of it, God is worthy of worship. He's worthy of praise. Therefore, David repeated his basic commitment once again. Verse 11, in God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. I'm not putting my trust in man. I'm not putting my trust in the circumstances. I'm not even putting my trust in those temporary little cunning things I might do, like acting crazy in the midst of the Philistines. That's a temporary help at best. No, it's not real help. My real help comes not from manipulating things. My real help comes from trusting God. So again he asks, verse 11, what can man do to me? And again he changes the term. Now it's the term in Hebrew, Adam. We say Adam. Adam is a word that means a ruddy color, like the ruddy color of the earth or dirt. So it's the name given to the first man, Adam, Adam, because he was created out of the ground. It's also the name that became in Scripture the name for all of mankind. Men and women, human beings, referred to as man in Scripture, Adam. 
So David now changes and uses that term to make the point that it, I understand who my enemies are. They're just mere dust. They've been created like from the ground like all other mortals, and like all other mortars, mortals, they're going to die. They're going to return to the ground. So what a contrast to God that man is. All people are insignificant. All people are impotent compared to God. Man can do nothing except what God in his sovereignty permits. And because God would do what was right on his behalf, and because God was, would do what was right according to God's own perfect will, David committed himself to something. He puts it in the term of, of, of the language of a vow. It's just the idea of commitment here. He says in verse 12, your, your vows are binding upon me, O God. In other words, the vows I make to you, my commitment to you. And here it is, I will render thank offerings to you. I'll give you the thanks and gratitude that you deserve. You know what he's saying here? He says, I I see it as my responsibility because of who you are and what you do. And I embrace this responsibility. I embrace the responsibility to express gratitude to you, Lord, for all your help and all your comfort. No matter what might happen, I'm going to offer thanks to you, God. And he was so confident that God's will would be done ultimately that he does express it as if it already had been done. Verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling. I mean, you've made a change in my heart, God. But notice that second item that he was thanking God for. I'm thanking God that you'll you'll keep my feet from stumbling. And that just means I'm thanking him that He is able to keep me from making the kind of mistakes that give my enemies a handle to grab hold onto and to bring me down. After all, they were watching his every step. But all of David's praying for deliverance, whether it's deliverance from death or just deliverance from making errors in judgment, why was he saying this? Why was he asking this? Why was he articulating this in his prayer? It wasn't just for his own personal comfort. Again, he had not made an idol out of comfort. He had not made an idol in his heart out of no trials and no difficulties and no crisis, no enemies. Here is his reason, verse 13. So that I may walk before God in the light of the living. He wasn't just seeking escape from his situation. Not just for his own personal comfort. He he wasn't just wanting to feel good and feel no fear. That wasn't his goal. Ultimately, what I want to do, he says, is to live my life a certain way. And in a word, he's saying, I want to live my life God-focused. I want to live my life always aware of your presence, God. Walking before you. Walking in Scripture is a way to describe your daily lifestyle. Living my life before you, aware of your presence at all times. Enjoying communion with you, God. Being obedient to you. And the really interesting part of the verse is that last phrase, in the light of the living. Light is found in Scripture representing life itself. It represents joy. It represents guidance from the Lord. It even represents our salvation. All that together. Here this phrase just means I want to live my life daily in light of the life that I find in you alone, God. 
I want to experience the joy in my life that pleasing you brings, regardless of my circumstances. That's what would result from David's confidence in the Lord and the Lord's help. You know, in New Testament terms, we might put it this way. It's living our lives. We pray for, the, for these things for the purpose, ultimately, that we can live our lives in a way that pleases Christ, glorifying to Christ, enjoying the abundant life that Christ gives, living a Christ-focused life. I first made the decision to preach on this psalm several months ago, and it kind of fell by the wayside in a sense. I went through some difficult times, and there were many passages of Scripture that gave me such comfort and encouragement, and this was one, and I made a mental note. Someday, I want to preach Psalm 56. Weeks and months go by, and all I had was a little folder that I carried around with me. It said Psalm 56 at the top of it. I looked ahead and thought, well, there's a few Sundays here before we start a new series, and the Sunday after Christmas, New Year's, I'll preach Psalm 56. I don't remember why I wanted to preach it, but I'll, I'll preach that. It must have been some reason. I got to studying it again, and I remembered why. I began to remember the strength that it gave me and the hope that it gave me. That's what it meant to me. But let's make it personal to you again. Let me ask those questions again. Do you ever feel afraid? Do you ever feel desperate or alone? And if so, is it due to something specific that's going on? Is it due to a specific person maybe? Or perhaps you'd say, no, it's just due to the rapidly deteriorating state of the world around us. I read the news. It's just due to the seeming, what seems to be the increase in wickedness and wickedness prevailing over truth is what it seems. Maybe that's it. doesn't matter. You can rise above your fear. You can rise above your despair, your loneliness. You can find yourself saying firmly, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? But I got to tell you, it's not magic wiffle dust that the Lord sprinkles on you. It involves a choice. Whenever you find yourself in frightening times, you must choose to put your trust in the Lord and in His Word. Only then will anxiety and fear be replaced with confidence and assurance. Only then will a sense of panic be replaced with a sense of peace. Therefore, this ability to choose to trust God depends on our knowledge of and trust in God's Word. To say it differently, we must be confident in His Word. We must be confident in the promises of His Word, promises that the Lord will never forsake His people. It says that. Confident in the promises that he does use all things for his glory and for the good of his people. Promises here that he's a just God and that his justice will be done eventually. Promises that even in heaven, 
if it comes to that, our death that promises in heaven, there'll be no more experiences of fear. These promises of God, if we rightly apprehend them, and if we choose to trust them, they do cast out fear. But here's what I find as a pastor sometimes. I find that people, when there are times of crisis are really hurting, sometimes some people resist wanting to hear what Scripture says. And that's sad because that is what the Holy Spirit uses to bring comfort and encouragement to His people. But people tend to start doubting the sufficiency of Scripture in times of difficulty. People start tending to look for other ways to think about their struggles, even looking for counsel from the world. But Scripture is sufficient to provide strength and comfort in every situation we face, including the most frightening of times. Listen, the bottom line is that terrifying circumstances, frightening times, do come, will come into the life of every believer. God even puts us in situations where our only recourse is to depend upon Him. And that's a good place to be. And when we are dependent on Him, we do find contentment and composure and peace even in the face of unrelenting troubles. So pray this way. Pray expressing your confidence in the Lord. Pray expressing your total dependence on Him. God loves to hear that. Pray expressing gratitude. Like the psalmist says, I I embrace this responsibility to give you the praise and the gratitude that you deserve. Pray expressing gratitude for what God does and His care for you. And as you pray that, remember, God knows every detail about every aspect of your life and your experience. He understands your challenges. He understands your trials, your difficulties, your enemies, your failures, all of it. And He understands it all far better than you do. So again, in frightening times... Pray expressing your dependence on the Lord. Pray with confidence that God's will is going to be done. Choose to trust God's wisdom, His power, and His goodness. And choose to thank Him for all that He is and all that He does. And keep in mind that the purpose for all that is so that you will walk before Him. You will live a life that pleases Him and glorifies Him. And that will be a life for you where you enjoy Him. Just a few scriptures to end with. Psalm 55, you look back just one psalm, and you find David saying this in verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. Peter in the New Testament says something very similar, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6 and following. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. 
And as we were reading the scripture for the day, Psalm 9, I'm hearing it through the grid of the sermon I was going to preach. Let me take you back to that psalm just for a moment. Let me read just a couple of verses again. Psalm 9. You heard him this morning. But Psalm 9, verse 9. This is David. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed. He mentions in our psalm today being oppressed. The Lord's a stronghold in the times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And then he prays again in verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. He said that in our psalm. Why? Verse 14. That I may tell of all your praises. I was so glad to study Psalm 56 finally and to remember why it encouraged me. And I'm going to pray that it encourages you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for the reminder of who you are and what you do and why you do all things. I thank you that even though we are frail, weak people, we know it. We, we, we feel fearful at times, alone, discouraged, sometimes tempted to be hopeless because of something we're facing that goes along with living life in a fallen world. So, Lord, thank you for using passages like this as a magnet to draw us up above the crisis, to remember who you are, and to remember that you're the kind of God that brings help to our souls. You remove the angst and trouble of our hearts when we choose to trust you. So, Lord, help us to do that. We do pray this morning, expressing our total dependence on you. We are nothing without you. And we are undeserving of your favor, but we pray, be gracious to us, O Lord. And I pray for those who, especially in our congregation, who are going through some difficult times, times in the family, some struggles there, some physical things that seem to be relentless, other issues, I pray especially you would encourage them that they might find their hope in you again. And I pray for anyone who's trying to live their life trusting in themselves and their own goodness and their own know-how and comparing themselves to other people maybe. Bring them to that place where they ask you to forgive them of their sin so that they put their trust in you alone for their salvation so they can walk before you in a way that pleases you. In our Savior's name, amen.